When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. A listener production. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. We've all had to adapt to changes in how we work, live and socialise. And for some of us, it's given us more flexibility. But are these workplace changes here to stay? What does the future of work look like? To answer this, media executive Lizzie Young spoke to a panel of women at the Leadership Summit we held in March 2021. The panel includes the chair at Fox Sports and Australian news channel Siobhan McKenna, and Chief Diversity, Inclusion and Wellbeing Officer at PricewaterhouseCoopers, Julie Mackay. So let's jump into it. Here's Lizzie. Siobhan, I'm going to come to you. In the media, particularly in, in those businesses that you run, and, and Woolworths, you know, there were essential workers who have to go into the office every day during the pandemic to either get product on shelves or to tell people information and give them the news. So the notion of being able to work from home for some is, is not entirely the case everywhere. And there is also, there was some commentary yesterday, I don't know if you saw it in the Fin, where there are businesses who believe that work from home will impact culture into the future. What are you seeing in the private sector and how are we going to balance those conflicting issues? So very many of the industries I am part of actually had a COVID experience that was quite different, really, to the experience of much of the rest of Australia. So our workers were coming into, as you say, you know, coming via public transport um, into their workplace and interacting with the public or interacting with each other and putting themselves theoretically in harm's way. And my hope is that these essential services and essential industries where so much has to be done in person, we, we sort of swing back to giving them uh, the respect that they deserve rather than relying on just the general way that we tend to compensate and recognise people uh, in frontline roles. So from a culture perspective, I think culture is hard to develop remotely. We are doing that and we're spending so much time and effort as leaders of our businesses in the business community to think through how to make this 
mixed model of working, real and viable and sustainable over the medium term. And while there's lots of practical issues associated with that, all of those can be worked through. I think the emerging issue is how do we build trust between colleagues um, remotely, for example? How do we get the benefits of the whiteboard session where you collaborate. And I'm part of creative industries in the media, which is how do creative people come together to swap ideas and and exchange views and is it possible to do that as effectively remotely? So they're some of the less practical but more philosophical and personality and trust-based issues that have tended to emerge. Precisely. Um, Julie, you've been in this space for a while and, and would see across a lot of industries as well. What are you seeing? I think I've had a a few different experiences. At one level, PwC as a workforce was in that privileged position of being able to overnight um, shut down every office and move our 8,500 people to remote working. And that was an absolute credit to our tech teams um, because it was relatively seamless. But we also had the relationships with our clients, which would normally have been much more, you know, FaceTime in the offices uh, with our clients. And so I think at one level, I experienced the year from a place of incredible privilege. And I realised some of the challenges that particularly workforces that have got hybrid models have had because they've got some workers being asked to to front up, to take risks, to be on the front line, and other workers in the same organisation able to work remotely and flexibly. And so what we're seeing in our clients is actually these really significant cultural divides emerging because there's this sense of us and them and you're asking us to do something you're not prepared to do yourselves. And so I think there's been incredible positives in terms of the new conversations that we're having about flexibility. We're fundamentally questioning whether we get on planes and travel for things that we wouldn't have given thought to before. And there's obviously huge wellbeing and environmental benefits of of doing less travel. We are, I think, having different conversations with clients about how you stand up and engagement and get the best talent on a client. That best talent doesn't always Uh, live in the same city or doesn't want to fly in, fly out and work full time. So suddenly that ability to actually manage some of those things which were seen in in our business as too hard or would put a client at risk um, now being completely normalised. And I think the other positive is while I absolutely accept that it has been challenging to build that sense of culture and team in a remote environment, I think there's been positives as well because suddenly we're in each other's bedrooms, we're around each other's dining tables, we're in each other's hallways and you can't ignore the cat that keeps climbing over or the kid that keeps bounding in or the chaos that goes into everybody's lives. I've got one particular colleague who I've literally spoken to every day for the last three years but only in seeing him with a pile of boxes behind him so high it looked like it was about to collapse down on him did I learn about some of his hobbies and some of the things that are really deeply of interest for him and motivate him every day and I won't go into what it was but I think there's a piece here about the crux of inclusion is actually getting to know individuals and creating that sense of psychological safety that comes with feeling like your manager cares about you, feeling like they're invested in you. And it's very hard not to care and not to be invested when suddenly you're in somebody's personal life. And so I think that actually creates a door that we could really push open and challenge the way we've worked in the past to focus on who are these individuals who we're asking to work with us, alongside us, to be at their best. And how do we enable that from a care perspective, not just from a this is your role, we expect you to go and do it perspective? So possibly some pros culturally at being more engaged as individuals, but some challenges around collaboration, around the actual operating model, if you like, of a business. Do we think 
this flexibility and this working from home culture, though, will have a positive impact equally on both genders. And I say that with a, with a smile of someone who had to homeschool a girl who's 10 years old who was a delight and a seven-year-old boy who was a disaster with a full-time working husband. <laughs> the early data is suggesting that women have picked up far more of the burden of unpaid care. You know, when I think about that, it's, it's the unpaid burden of, of care for children. So when children are at home instead of at school or at childcare or at kindergarten, uh, women more often than men taking responsibility for planning the day, planning the lessons, getting them engaged, as well as trying to do their job leading to, in the US, a very significant number of women uh, not leaving their jobs necessarily, but reducing the hours that they're working, which has very long-term economic impacts, as you can imagine. And I think there's another piece around, um, we've heard these incredible stories of communities and neighbourhoods coming together, people checking on each other, shopping for each other, picking up each other's pharmaceuticals. And those are amazing stories that I don't think anyone would want to change about the year that we've just had. But when you look at who is doing those tasks in communities, the vast majority of them are women. And so I worry when households have more bodies in them, more of the time there is more mess. And that has definitely been my lived experience over the last 12 months. Um, when you are working at home, even if you work your full day, by virtue of not having the, the commute at the end of the day, you're the person that does the cleanup, the cooking, the bath time in, in a albeit sort of traditional family setting. And so there's something there that I think we need to really face into that says flexibility is absolutely critical and is a game changer, I think, in this space. But if we don't also address the unpaid caring responsibilities and almost accelerate our efforts in that space, I think we are at risk of, of a backslide uh, as well. Siobhan, um, just to pick up on, on your point as well around collaboration and, you know, it's culture, it's collaboration. I feel like a lot of the money that is now not being spent on travel and things like that needs to be redispersed into building what a new culture looks like for a company or the new ways of, of operating. How do you change and how do we have the conversation in our businesses to get people to acknowledge that, you know, in the pandemic, it was like everybody just quickly go and work from home. But actually, if it's long-term and if this is the future of work, how we remunerate people, how we set them up in the future is going to need to look different. I think that's right. Um, and I guess my observation is that never waste a good crisis. And I think that we in this room and leaders more broadly uh, need to view this as a wonderful opportunity. So as we've said, it's been extraordinary what organisations can do on a short-term basis to make things continue to work and to organise people working from home, etc, etc. And the idea, which I hear a little, is that everything will come back to normal. <laughs> I actually hear that a little bit, uh, mostly from people who particularly enjoyed the model that we had pre-2020, which is that people all go into the office, they all are there all of the time, and uh, if you want to impress your boss, you stay until after he or she leaves. And so there are, I think, a minority of people, but they're often reasonably powerful people who really quite liked that model. It worked for them and are yearning for it to return. Um, but the vast majority of us are thinking about this as an opportunity to revolutionise work and to 
exploit this opportunity, I think we do need to think very carefully about how to put in place together urgently some of the structural things that need to happen, whether it is different equipment at home, whether it is different pay, whether it's different childcare arrangements, all of those sorts of things, so that we end up better off than we were before the pandemic. But my fear is that the pendulum will swing back and in five years time, as a group, we could get together and say, you know, have this conversation again and we'd all go, oh, we wasted that opportunity. We didn't rush in, fill the gap, claim the space and make what we wanted to happen a reality. Hey, Helen again, jumping in to say that one of the things that struck me is how work flexibility is important regardless of gender. We left our panel discussing how the pandemic has impacted the way we work. Now, Lizzie changes tact and poses a question to the group about climate change and how it might change our future. I'm going to pivot slightly to a couple of other topics in the boardroom. How can workplaces of the future be responsive to dangerous climate change? Julie, I might start with you. I think for me, it's about seeing climate change within a spectrum of responsibilities that every organisation, big and small, has. And so I I actually like organisations to think about their sort of ESG, environmental social governance obligations, as part of their, their sort of social licence to operate. And, you know, in the world at the moment, we're seeing a lot of these terms very quickly changing, moving, being replaced. But essentially, regardless of what terms you choose to use, boards and leadership teams fundamentally leaning into what are our environmental obligations, what are our social obligations and what are our governance requirements that are going to ensure that we've got the best possible platform for our employees to thrive, do their best work and ultimately to attract the best workers to us, but also to to prevent uh, future risks to our business, to our clients. And of course, we're seeing increased shareholder activism and public activism in this space as well. So I think there's something that each of us can do as individuals to really call on our leadership to explain what they are doing in the ESG space, if it's not a lot, to engage with experts and try and really start to think about what they could be doing that would be leading practice. If it is a lot, then actually sharing those stories with other companies, particularly with small businesses who may not have access to the same sorts of advice or consultants or or supports. And so the more we can actually share in this space, the more traction and the more progress I think we'll make. But I think as individuals, it's also about remembering that we all have you know, albeit relatively small, power as consumers. And you only have to look at examples like Arnott's being forced to to commit that the Tim Tam would only ever be made from ethically sourced chocolate. You know, that started with three or four consumers on social media and it drove a huge environmental and social outcome. And each of us make decisions every day about where we bank, about where we put our superannuation, about where we shop, about the, the household purchasing decisions that we make. And if you just spend a little bit more time researching the ESG commitments and priorities of where you're about to spend your money and have conversations in your community about why you're making those choices, the power of that, I think, is is really possible to harness. But I think we often miss it in the oh, this is all too big and I'm not a CEO, therefore I can't change it conversation. I think that's quite interesting actually to pick up on because, you know, you mentioned lots of different constituent sort of groups in that. But there is also this piece at the moment where 
our workforces, our teams, our people have never been more driven by purpose, I don't think. And so, Siobhan, to you, what are you hearing from the myriad of different teams that you have responsibility for? Like, What's driving them? What's their expectation of, of corporate Australia and what we're going to step up and do? I think it's a long time since people uh, treated work and personal beliefs entirely separately. We've now formed a view, I think certainly in most of corporate Australia, that you bring yourself to work. And I know from all of the businesses that I'm involved in uh, that what staff want, how staff feel about an issue, uh, how they want to spend their discretionary effort while at work are all extraordinarily relevant things um, to be alert to and to plan around. I think corporate Australia is reasonably well set up to respond to these pressures because that's what we do um, all of the time in corporate life. There's a profit motive and you need to sell products, we need to sell services and customers need to want them and pay you for them. And so therefore when that changes or modifies, corporates get their act together and do something about it. And so, uh, therefore, I think corporations actually tend to be quite responsive to the desires and interests, if they're expressed, from the people that work there, um, as much as they are to the, the customers they're selling things to. And that's good news. <laughs> I think that's unambiguously good news because it means that we can all have an influence on what our companies do. I agree. You know, it, it is tricky when profit is what makes the business is sustainable, who are employers and things like that. But the more that we can be engaged in in what drives that and the purpose that consumers and our workforces want, it's, it's really, really crucial. My next question is if you could each give to the room one piece of advice on something that people can take away to think about how they can drive change to ensure that our workplaces of the future are fairer, more equal and more diverse? Julie, I might start with you. It's a big question. I think we have a moment in history in this moment. And we look around the world and we see that no country in the world has achieved gender, gender equality. And that's, you know, some combination of access to leadership opportunities, economic empowerment and the ability to live free from violence and discrimination. In Australia, we have a moment in history at this time to try and really shift the dial around violence and discrimination. We've got a spotlight on the issue in our highest offices. We've got every board and leadership team, if not consciously discussing what their risks might be around this, where their exposures are, what more they need to do, feeling deeply uncomfortable. And so, if each of us could commit not just to see things, not just to be aware, but to step in and try and support, but also to agitate through our communities, in our organisations, to call on our leaders to do better, I think we could actually find ourselves sitting here in 12 months or 18 months' time with a really different legislative framework that put the victim at the centre with a really different corporate responsibility commitment around this that actually saw organisations taking their um, prevention and response seriously 
and with women, including I suspect many of the, the women in this room feeling a lot safer. But I think that all could be lost if we don't act today, if we don't act in the next couple of days, because we know the media cycle, we know there'll be another disaster that will take this off the front page and put something else on. And so it's capturing the moments where the door is open for me and each of us thinking about what we've got the power to do. Who do we know that we can have a conversation with? Who can we write to? Who can we activate? And how do we do that now? Well said. Siobhan, what's one takeaway to get us to a fairer, more equal and diverse workforce of the future? Look, my observation is that we must believe it can be so. So often, I think, we can run the risk of having self-defeating conversations. Um, I, I spent a summer interning in the public service, um, probably around the same time that you started, and I worked alongside women who had overcome this forced retirement when they became married and were able to stay, but then it was formal that they would only be paid 70% of the male rate for the equivalent role. And so much progress has been made, but by God, we're not done. And we have to take responsibility to do the things that we can do. I, I recognise that certainly I and Julie, we're all in positions of enormous influence and power. And we must do what we can do to make things better for all of the women and the men, but certainly the relevant conversation today is the women who work in our environments. We have a responsibility to do that, and uh, we do, um, but there is more that can be done. And believing that we can affect change uh, is an incredibly important part of making change happen. Do you ever, though, feel like you have fatigue about having... <laughs> <laughs> Yes, oh, I can hear Helen giggling do. down there. Of um, course I do. But I get back on the horse. Um, I mean, and I'm, how do you do that? Look, I do it because I think if I don't do it, who will? Like, sure, everyone does their bit, but I know at, Wool, you know, at Woolworths, other than the CEO, the three or four most senior people in the organisation are women. They're in line roles, they're enormously impressive and they're excellent, capable executives. The same is true at Foxtel, the same is true at Nova, the same is true at a number of other companies I'm associated with. And is that because I'm there? No, I'm not <laughs> delusional enough to think that. But boy, can I have influence on those environments? Is it my obligation to have influence on those environments? Yes, it is. And so, yeah, some days I go, oh my goodness, <laughs> I can't believe you know, what's happened today, either to me or to colleagues, um, the attitudes that people betray, the incidents that happen. But if I pack up and go home, then gosh, everyone would be, you know, like I, I've got it as good as it can be in the sense that I have a reasonable amount of control in the environment in which I conduct my professional life. It's not perfect, let me tell you. But if I can't battle on, how could, you know, how can we all battle on? Agreed. Parliament House should be the model workplace for this country. The people who are in Parliament House are the lawmakers, they're the legislators, and that's where standards should be set. And sadly, that's not the case. So can we genuinely believe that 
this change is coming and we can get there. This isn't an issue specific to our Parliament House. Very many industries have off-site things that happen. The Dental Association of Australia, no doubt, to get together and they have a conference wherever it is that they go and they're away from their homes and families, etc., etc. So this is a prevalent problem um, that I don't think can be explained by people living away from their families. It's just wrong and bad and there is no excuse. And alcohol is not an excuse. Treating people poorly is just not an excuse. And therefore, I can't countenance either of those reasons as being special um, or creating any kind of excuse for what has happened um, or is alleged to have happened. So uh, the thing I think is very interesting and that we should um, and this is one of the confluence of events that I think makes this conversation different, is in the Ms Higgins incident, she was working in a female minister's office and then she moved from that female minister's office to another female minister's office. Now, what the conversation would have been, I suspect, if she had been working for a male minister and then moved to another male minister's office, the conversation would have been, because we would have allowed it to be so, if she'd been working for a woman, they would have dealt with it differently. Women would be better at dealing with this, right? And we're not having that conversation. We're actually having the real conversation, which is, this is wrong, it shouldn't happen, workplaces need to be safe. What can we collectively do, irrespective of gender, to treat people with respect uh, and as other human beings? So I, I think that makes the confluence of events that we've spoken about critically important because we can no longer believe that women by definition will treat an issue in an appropriate way when a man wouldn't, i.e. gender, our gender, doesn't fix the response to an issue. And that, I think, makes the conversation real. And we mustn't lose the opportunity to acknowledge and accept that. You know, I, I, th I think one of the really interesting things, having worked across a whole range of different industries in this space, is that leading practice that we celebrate at the moment is leadership who are going, wow, that's probably happening in my workplace or on my watch, and so I'm going to do a policy review and I'm going to do some comms and I'm going to tell victims that they're safe to come forward and there'll be no consequence for their career. I don't know a single company in Australia that is investing in a male education program that looks at power and privilege. And I think that's the conversation that we're uncomfortable with. And just for fun, so this is a, this is a good exercise, just for fun. Ask a male in a senior leadership position their perspectives on power and privilege and watch it, like watch the kind of at best confusion but at worst meltdown start to happen. <laughs> because when you call someone's power and you call their privilege and you actually say that is the cause of sexual harassment, sexual assault, violence against women, it's a really difficult conversation to have. The only organisation I know anywhere in the world that has faced into this was the Swedish military, who almost overnight withdrew all funding from women's programs because they weren't getting anywhere and started a male behavioural change attitudinal program. And that, I think, is the, is the game change because we're still focusing on process failure. Who said what? Who didn't do what? What was the process? What was the complaints handling mechanism? We're not focusing enough on 
why did that individual male feel like he was entitled to commit that crime? And that to me is the shift that we need to see in Australia. And, and I don't think we're anywhere close, if I'm honest, in the media, in the commentary and in our boardrooms at getting to the heart of the issue. So we're not close but we definitely do not have gender fatigue and we're going to get there. We're excited. We don't have gender fatigue and in, I think my experience is, yeah, I look into that every day and I ask the question every day and men get used to having to ask that question once, once you've asked it the first time. You can ask it 127 times until they get it and if they don't get it, they obviously are not going to really enjoy the workplace, right? So I think there's plenty of men who are up for that conversation and can respond to it well, but they're not being pushed. So the question is who pushes them? And is it boards, is it CEOs, is it senior women in these organisations? All I know is that it's not gonna miraculously happen. Someone has to decide to actually make those conversations happen. And yes, it would be nice if there was some policy we could introduce or some training program we could roll out. But my guess is it's down to individual responsibility and accountability from senior people right through to junior people to do that. That's what leaning in means. When someone's inappropriate in a meeting, leaning into it and saying, actually, that was a power imbalance. Did we really like that? No, probably not. And that can happen at any level in any setting. I think that's an excellent place to end this conversation. Julie, Siobhan, thank you so much. And remember, that was from one of our live events. And you can become part of the movement by signing up at futurewomen.com. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, executive producer Jenny Goggin, sound production by Darcy Thompson. Listener. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.